Hello, everybody, and uh, welcome to another episode of the Burning Desire Show with me, Charles Burns. Uh, I'm here today with Do Dr. Robert Yoho. Pronounced that correctly, surely? That's correct. Thank you. I, I should always check these things before I actually go ahead and, um, and, and ask, but, you know, it is what it is. Um, so uh, as, as per my, the general kind of way in which uh, I like to run these things, I like to understand um, how the person as in yourself, uh, has got to where you've got to, and then you've obviously authored, um, it's two books, right? Am I correct? Yes, that? that's yeah, correct. Two books, and I'd like to talk to you, I'll talk about um, the, the main theme of being kind of the corruption within um, the medical industry, particularly in the United States, but I'm sure it applies elsewhere as well. Um, so I always am fascinated to understand, particularly people in like your community, medical community, um, do you remember when you were younger in kind of, well, I think it's elementary school for yourself or kind of the high school, being very interested in uh, the sciences, biology, all the rest of it? Uh, when, where did the kind of medical, you know, idea stem from for you? Uh, well, my parents were both doctors. And so okay. I kind of got led into the thing by the nose. And, and uh, so that's, that's kind of the, the thing. And I, I did the typical you know, four years of high school, four years of college, four, year, uh, four years of medical school, and four years of postgraduate training. I mean, it's, it's insane. And it, it, you make a lot of, uh, you don't understand the sacrifices you're making uh, as you're doing it, but it's, uh, it's crazy. So again, I, I'm pretty sure it's the same from what I understand from my friends and the people I've spoken to in the American college system, where you choose uh, majors and minors and you kind of match and match subjects. Is it the same within the medicine doing your undergraduate degree or is there a clearer path as do you have to take certain subjects to allow you to go into kind of the postgraduate piece? Well, you catch a train, <laughs> you know, and the train is the medical uh, training path and you can, the chemistry majors and undergraduate are the most highly prized because it's so challenging. At least it was when I was going through and the medical schools gave you a better chance to get in. And I, but I took an easier way out, which was a biology degree because I'm the, the chemists, the chemists were, I mean, that was the hardest degree at my undergraduate school, Oberlin. And they, they worked seven or eight hours a day on their chemistry classes alone. I mean, it's crazy. Biology was a lot easier. So you did the biology degree, masters of science biology. Um, and then you did your postgraduate after that, right? The, the postgraduate in America, I, you know, I'm not completely familiar with the British uh, medical system, but it's, I believe the undergrad and the medical system or uh, medical training is integrated. But yeah. in here, um, we get into medical school after an undergraduate degree, and that's medical school's four years. And then in order to get licensed, uh, we perform one to four years, one to six or eight years of postgraduate training, you know, and I did four. So in that postgraduate training, is that like physical hands-on um, work experience, one better phrase, in hospitals, et cetera? It, it's partly uh, hands-on and partly uh, academic. It's two years of academics, more or less. Uh, and then the last two years, uh, they throw you in the hospital long hours and you just follow everyone around and try to pretend like your white coat means something. <laughs> I'm, I've asked someone before this, I think another doctor, um, What's it like when you are first in front of your first patient or first couple of patients and you've got to use this theory that you've learned and apply it to an actual situation? What's the, what's, what's going through your mind at that point? 
Uh, Charles, I'm 68. That was a long time ago, but I remember feeling like an imposter. Yeah. Yeah. And um, is it within that kind of period of time of kind of you going around these gen general different parts of specialities? Is that when you realize you want to go into one field or another? Or how do you come to that piece? Well, uh, I had a little better idea because my parents were doctors. But right. when you're going around, you sort of get an understanding of whether you can tolerate the um, stresses of a given profession. Like, for example, neurosurgery is sort of, in my view, is at the top of the list for stresses. And they, they essentially uh, enter the hospital, don't leave for four or five or six years of training. And they, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's very demanding. Uh, it's demanding of uh, manual skills for the surgery. I mean, their surgeries can last up to 24 hours. I mean, it's crazy. I, I knew I wasn't suited for uh, the rigors of even general surgery, which is much easier than um, neurosurgery. But so I, I ended up um, doing emergency medicine and, you know, tra transferring to other fields in, during my career. And uh, your parents, what were their special specialities in the medical sense? My, my father was a urologist, which is kidneys and bladder. And my mother was a dermatologist, a skin doctor. So then you spend some time, as you said, into the emergency. Is that literally, you call it ER, we call it A&A, it's the same thing, right? People who have right. an accident or emergency that needs to deal with there and then trauma, et cetera. Yeah, I did training in emergency medicine. I worked as, an emer you know, I got my, uh, took all the tests, the board certification and all, all that in emergency medicine, and then ended up uh, working as an emergency physician for several years. And then I transferred those skills into a sort of a family practice career. And within a couple of years, I began training in cosmetic surgery outside the established system. And I went to conferences every week for every month for a decade. And I established skills in cosmetic surgery and became a cosmetic surgeon. And during the bulk of my career, I had an independent practice uh, doing a breast dog augmentations, you know, enlarging boobs and uh, liposuction and facelifts and that sort of thing, which, so what, which is another, another rabbit hole. I, I, Charles, I'm kind of like Rip Van Winkle. I did all this stuff and I stayed in that medical bywater and I sort of woke up. I started studying medical corruption and I woke up and I eventually published this book butchered by healthcare, which is my, uh, you know, primary interest here. Let, let me, I, I, I need, Karen, I need, okay, sorry. I need to do my disclaimer, which I forgot to do at the beginning of the podcast. Um, this is not medical care. Uh, if you have a medical problem, you have to go see, uh, you know, a doctor and establish a relationship and use this information at your own risk. I'm sorry to have to do that, but in America, we have these uh, people called plaintiffs lawyers and they sue you over anything. <laughs> so go ahead. For sure. So um, I'm, I'm interested. Um, we will come on to that, the book for the, the meat of the conversation for sure. Yep. Um, so I'm interested as to how or why you, you came into the cosmetic side of stuff. Like how did that come about? Well, I, you know, I did a year of dermatology in my training, a formal uh, year and they, the dermatologists in America, America are far more involved in cosmetic surgery, I think, than they are anywhere else in the world. And they do a variety of uh, procedures. 
And I went to an American Academy of Dermatology meeting and I sort of saw my future laid out. And I, um, I did better in an independent setting. So I knew that if I was able to have an independent practice, I would, um, you know, I would likely adjust better to that than hanging out in hospitals and filling out medical records and going to staff meeting with a bunch of people I didn't care about and so on. So um, I saw what eventually became my future when I went to that American Academy of Dermatology meeting. And I eventually trained with many physicians, including uh, plastic and cosmetic surgeons and ear, nose and throat, uh, facial plastic surgeons, and developed many mentorships uh, besides just the dermatologist uh, with these other uh, surgeons and, and, uh, and developed uh, over a period of, you know, essentially you develop during your whole career as a physician, if you're, if you're, uh, if you're involved with the process and I developed until the very end. And so um, was cosmetic surgery, this was like, what? Um, this was in 92 from what I read that you kind of started in this kind of, uh, this realm in 1992, I, I hate to break it to you, but I wasn't actually born, um, <laughs> but, uh, was, was cosmetic surgery in like a, in its nascent and, and, and new, or has it been around for a long time? Well, it was well-established, but you're right. It was in the midst of enormous upheaval and change. And the field that I was interested in, which was liposuction, that was only a few years old. And the, um, the techniques had been perfected and I was able to uh, attend the offices and assisted surgery with people who were the innovators and who had established the methods that, that it could be done as outpatient. Prior, you know, 10 years before that, it was enormously bloody and it was risky. And the new methods, which involved putting a large quantity of saltwater solution with adrenaline and anesthetic into the patient's fat had evolved uh, and transformed the whole thing into something that uh, now is done very commonly by people at outpatient uh, facilities and they do it and go home right away. Excuse so, me, ignorance, but like how, you know, how do people, um, the, the inventors of these techniques, like how do they come across these ideas? Is it, is it like a trial and error thing where they kind of say to a patient, we're, we're trialing something new out. Do you want to, like, how does that work? Uh, Charles, as you study one field and get more and more uh, understanding of all the basics and then the advanced work, you sort of are able to see into the future. And this is true for any field. This is true for mathematics. It's true for any science field. And these, these brilliant guys who um, put together the new techniques from the past techniques were standing on the shoulders of many, many people. And so um, I don't think there's anything unusual about the process in medicine as opposed to any other science or even business. Um, it's a process of sort of being able to see the future when you are completely conversant with everything that's ha happened in the past. So you mentioned that uh, liposuction was uh, a particular specialty yourself, plus the breast augmentation. Um, yeah. What what do have a rough understanding, but of what how liposuction works? But as a, a layman, like how would you describe the the process or, or what what you're trying to achieve? Okay, so uh, the doctor will uh, you know you're you will draw on your skin 
the areas that he wants to contour, uh, you know, on the fatty areas with a Sharpie marker usually. And then uh, we uh, typically uh, cleanse the skin with some, uh, you know, stuff to bring down the bacterial count. Uh, chlorhexidine is typically used. And uh, then uh, often the patient is given uh, a, a, sedate, a sedative uh, drug like Valium or uh, sometimes uh, opioid uh, such as Demerol. And then we uh, are able to put a little local anesthetic in areas and puncture the skin and place uh, literally sometimes gallons of local anesthetic fluid, which is very, very dilute or not very concentrated into the fat itself. And then the patient uh, sits around for 15 or 20 minutes and the uh, liposuction commences with a, a rod with a hole in the end connected to suction. The fat flows into the bottle. And when you're done, you're put in a compression girdle um, that covers the entire area. And the, some, some of the extra fluid will drain out over the next 12 to 24 hours. And the healing process takes, um, you know, the complete healing process takes uh, several months, but the early healing where you're pretty much okay uh, is uh, just a few days. Um, alternatively, some people use a general anesthetic, but that's unnecessary these days. That's done more safely without using a general anesthetic, which poses additional risks. And so I, I presume the people that are getting this done is, is aesthetic, right? Most of the time, is it that they're looking to this bit, the body, they want to look better. Is that, is that the main reason we'll get liposuction? Yeah, it's the only reason. The, there are some theories that it uh, improves diabetes and other things, but um, it probably doesn't because people can gain the weight so rapidly back. Even large volumes of fat removal doesn't do the trick. So I think this question leads on to where we're going with the, um, your view now on the, the medical community or industry. Um, when when someone presents themselves uh, to or they presented themselves, sorry, to your clinic at the time and wanted breast augmentation or liposuction or facelift or whatever the case may be, um, what's the the ethics involved from your side to qualify them for going through with the surgery versus versus not? Like, is it or do you have the view that everyone's you know body's their own body and what they want to do with it is, is what they want to do with it? Well. First of all, you have to recognize that um, anytime you're getting paid to do a procedure per procedure, there's a huge conflict of interest. And it's very difficult to separate out your, um, your, your needs from the patient needs. And it's, it's easy to convince yourself that selling a surgery that maybe is marginal or not uh, completely um, uh, indicated is reasonable if you get paid a lot of money. So we're seeing a lot of that in healthcare now. And I just want to preface my comments with, with that, that it's, it's a struggle to, uh, to be completely a patient advocate to see the patient first as your only ethic, right? Um, but even but with that disclaimer, um, we tried to be counselors and we turned away at least uh, 10% of the patients who would physically have been good candidates. Uh, because we didn't think they were psychologically qualified. They had unrealistic ideas about it, or they were, they were, uh, you know, they had various problems. Um, so you have a look at them, you see what you can, and you have a good feel after you've done 
a few hundred or a few thousand cases, you have a good feel about what happens after the surgery. You look at the, the risks, and of course, if they have a lot of medical problems, it may not be the smartest thing at all, I'm sorry. Yep. So, uh, so, um, so you look at the patient, you try to entirely uh, serve their interests, and you counsel them about, about what's reasonable, what can be done, and whether it's reasonable for them, given their body and their psychological setup. That makes sense. Um, so you spent uh, the best part of almost 30 years as a cosmetic uh, plastic surgeon, right? That's um, correct. And you then written this book, which you alluded to before, called Butched by Healthcare. Um, go on, sorry. Yeah, that's correct. And uh, so what I'm interested in understanding is at what point in time did you, so you retired now, it's, it's, it's important to note for people listening. Uh, at what point in time did you um, start to really look at the industry as a whole, um, which then led you to, to writing this book and, and where we are today? Yeah, um, I, uh, here's the, and this is, this is into the weeds of my background, but um, about four years ago, I started looking at healthcare corruption and that my entry into it was because I did hormone therapy for my patients who were mostly women. And these, these women, by the time I quit, I was, uh, you know, I was in my sixties and most of my patients were 50 and older and they were going through the change of life. And so I realized that our current standards for hormone therapy were somehow completely false. I mean, the, the, we've got these warnings put on by the FDA uh, that these hormones are dangerous. And in actuality, they are some of the best treatments that we've ever uh, seen. And we have over a hundred years experience with some of them and 80 to hundred years experience with most of the rest. And so I, I, I took classes and, and training about how to prescribe hormone therapy. Can you hear that dog? A little bit. Well, if he's bugging you, I'll let him in. You want me to do that? Yeah, yeah go ahead. Okay. Tense. Sure. Sure. So we're talking about um, the, you, you realized that the hormone therapy you were giving uh, was much safer than led to believe. Right. And so step by step, I was led into this medical corruption uh, field after I realized that the hormones, I, I initially wrote or, you know, I ended up writing this book called Hormone Secrets, which is a guide to hormone therapy and uh, a, a treatise about how uh, the hormones have been uh, butchered by industry. And they basically, they're trying to sell patent drugs. So they, they've slandered and defamed these other drugs, which work, they're some of our most reliable and uh, advantageous drugs in all, the whole uh, formulary. It's amazing. Um, so, uh, so anyway, I got into um, the corruption thing. And pretty soon I was studying, uh, uh, you know, uh, big pharma, and I was studying the insurance industry, and, uh, uh, and I was studying all these corrupt medical specialties. You Which know, just led you into writing uh, the book, right? Yeah, and that led me into writing, I mean, this is a four-year process I'm describing that led me into writing Butchered by Healthcare, which, you know, these things are, they're not moneymakers, Charles. They're, uh, they're selling about 30 copies 
a day, but it's, uh, you know, the advertising costs are, it's exact break even. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's a passion project. And it's, it's the corruption in medicine is such an outrage that I feel compelled to promote the whole thing. So it's interesting, actually, timing wise, because I, uh, as probably a lot of people, just have watched Dope Sick. Have you, are you familiar with Dope Sick, the drama? No, but okay. that's about opioids. Yeah, so Dope Sick is yeah. the, it's Michael Keaton stars in Dope Sick. Um, it's on Disney Plus in the UK and Hulu in the US. And I don't know what uh, elsewhere where it's on. Um, and it tells a story of OxyContin and um, the yeah. Sackler family, Purdy Farm, yeah. etc. Um, now, interestingly enough, I uh, was looking, doing some research to yourself and some of the stats that you provide on the US healthcare system are pretty startling. Um, one being that the medical spend is twice that of um, similarly developed yeah. countries, um, that 70% of Americans take some form of uh, pharmaceuticals. 50 uh, to 70%, uh, depending on the estimate, yeah. 20% take five plus uh, yeah. drugs. Um, <laughs> it's crazy. The nursing home patients often are taking 20 drugs and this means that they are essentially medication farms. Those things can't possibly be helpful. It's ridiculous. You know, it's, they're just, they're just like gorks. You know, some of them are just gorks hooked up to the pharmaceutical machine and their, their medications cost thousands or tens of thousands of dollars a month. And it's all goes billed straight to Medicare and in the pockets of, of uh, you know, the, the pharmacies and the big pharma companies who manufacture the drugs. So I'm, I'm interested because Obviously, if you look at kind of life expectancy, and I've not looked at it precisely, but from what I know anecdotally, people are living longer um, than they ever have done before. But are they like living healthier or are we just kind of like perpetuating people's life lifespans? But actually, it's with, you know, artificial drugs, et cetera, et cetera. And really, you know, if we let people, quote unquote, a bit more but die naturally, that would be a, a better kind of thing to do. What, what's your view on that? Well, the trend towards longevity has been a century long trend or even longer, uh, but the last um, 20 years has seen a reversal of some of that. And certainly in America, where we have, uh, where we have people like Anthony Fauci running the show uh, and passing out uh, almost a trillion dollars worth of research money during his uh, 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 lifetime, um, Thing, we're getting sicker. There's no doubt about it. And the lifetime has declined. And the other interesting statistic is that although America spends double per person on healthcare of any other country, Britain spends 10% of their gross domestic product and we spend 20 of wow. our massive gross domestic product, which is double per person. Uh, what any other country, Canada, you know, um, France, uh, Australia all spend about 10 um, we have mortality that is worse than any of the other ones. It's, it's about 20th in mortality. And so the whole, the whole thing doesn't do any good. And in the academic sphere, they know that um, about 50% of our healthcare is either neutral or, or injurious. And that's not controversial. 50% of American healthcare is... Now, I'm not saying Britain is a paragon. You know, you have lots of problems there too. And some of these companies, 
have threatened to leave Britain because Britain is so dependent on the pharmaceutical company, um, you know, re tax revenue and so on. They they threatened to leave Britain if if they they don't fall into line with their uh, uh, agendas, you know, such as approving uh, antidepressant or something like that. Um, so uh, Britain's not a paragon, and you've got uh, essentially the same problems, but it, ours is magnified by throwing more money and uh, bad solutions. And is it? really simply put just a capitalist kind of money grab that's caused the corruption as you call it or the kind of um you know the pharmaceutical companies are getting bigger and richer and but the the products that they're outputting not making patients healthy is that the crux of the problem the the you know the, the golden rule is not what we think it is it's he that has the gold makes the rules and the perfect example is this uh, insane uh, vaccine uh, narrative where uh, I, I believe Pfizer is due to make $30 billion, or it may be that the whole uh, vaccine industry is due to make $30 billion in one year. Now, these guys typically make $1 billion the first year, and they have expenses, you know, like marketing expenses and all that. Now the governments are enforcing uh, vaccine mandates and all this insanity and the expenses are less and they, $30 billion is enough to buy off anyone. And it, it's, it only takes a few million or 10 million or 20 million to buy off some physician prostitute like Sanjay Gupta. Have you ever heard of him? He's an American commentator who is us singing the party line and uh you know claiming the vaccines work and all this other stuff that's uh, uh pretty much uh, i mean it's just fraudulent so is, is the general medical community in america i've not actually heard that much here um uh, saying the same thing in respects of the the covid vaccine to referring to here um, just being ineffective and, and unnecessary? Is that the general kind of play or are they in the pockets of big pharma and therefore that's not the general? <laughs> Charles, everybody's in the pockets of big pharma. And the problem is that the media companies and the tech companies are in the pockets of big pharma. And pharma and the medical industries, certainly pharma's standard operating procedure is to create stories that are absolutely false and release them to the media. They do studies of drugs like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine that were faked or possibly used doses that were many times the toxic dose, even killing people in third world countries in order to produce a study that claims that these drugs don't work. And the problem with that is that the if they had a therapy that worked, and these therapies definitely work, um, they'd be unable to market an experimental drug like these vaccines. It typically takes at least five years. I mean, five years is a, is a benchmark, but it takes eight years to understand whether uh, any kind of drug works at all. I mean, it takes eight years of studies. And these things are just thrown at us like they're, uh, they're godsend, together with a fear-mongering campaign of how uh, dangerous COVID is. Uh, and this, this is not new behavior. And if the listeners want to hear the background and see further examples of this being done over the last 20 years, uh, my Butchered by Healthcare has it explained at a, at a very basic level. It's got 500 references too. So, so that's the... So, so how, you know, I'm sure your book would help with this, but how does a, a layperson... Um 
figure out which kind of drugs are good for them and for want a bit of phrase and which are just marketing how, how do you figure that out without coke matter research well the the um if you there there's a couple of things you can do um now that we couldn't do before and this is kind of the positive story um you can consult with any doctor you want now if you're in the US uh, via Skype or whatever. And prior to this, it wasn't uh, considered acceptable to consult without uh, an in-person visit, but Trump did an executive order last year and during the COVID thing, and he said that it was now acceptable. That's uh, the first thing. The second thing is there are patient groups that you can join. Now these are largely sponsored by um, Big Pharma, but they have very sincere people in them and you can consult your patient group for your particular disease or entity and you can communicate directly with the other patients in the groups and you can often find the truth from people who know as much about the disease as the doctors so those are some clues uh, for people but if you my advice is to understand the scene as much as you can read as much as widely as you can and start with my book because you have the information there it the references are if you buy the ebook for four dollars it's you can just click through to the references if you don't believe anything i say but it all yeah so that that's the patient view of it and um i'm also interested from a personal level as well but um we talked about your view that um, people are actually getting sicker on healthier kind of um, over a period of time. Um, you also as a stat you mentioned, or I've, I've read, you've talked about of, that one in six uh, people in America use uh, psychiatric medication. Oh, this um, is the worst. Yeah. Now, it's interesting to know how this plays out. Well, psychiatry in my view is the most corrupt medical specialty. And you have to understand that all my views are derivative of other writers. I, I don't have any original uh, material in, in my work. Um, and psych these the, the drugs in psychiatry have not been subjected to sugar pill controlled trials the way other drugs are, uh, because there's the endpoints are entirely subjective. In other words, the the, the psychiatrist or the shrink, he decides what is happening more or less. And so, and the, the drugs are tremendously toxic. Um, they're far more toxic than anyone gives them credit for. The addiction quality of every single psychiatric drug is, it's unlike an opioid, but it's profound. And for example, to get off Prozac, many people require tapering doses for six to 12 months and they still have breakthrough anxiety and depression, which are symptoms of getting off the drug rather than symptoms of their underlying illness. Mm -hmm. The most of these psychiatric conditions that are being treated heavily with drugs now in their native state, wax and wane, they get better and they get worse. But once you're on the drugs, you're stuck on the drugs, you're stuck with the behavior that drug produces. And this can include violent behavior and suicides from the SSRI class drugs like Prozac, these side effects are not obviously in every person, but it's a few percent of people have violent or suicidal thoughts and 
a few of them act on that. And we think many of the mass violence uh, situations in America were related to either getting off of one of these drugs or being on one of these drugs. So bring me back to your interest here. So, so there's a couple of things there. So um, what, you know, people talk about this, but in psychiatric conditions, are they, I've heard them people talk about four kind of chemical imbalances and that. Oh yeah. Okay. That's important. That's an important point. Let me just delve into that for a second. Yeah. So everybody's heard about this chemical imbalance in the brain corrected by the magical Prozac or whatever the SSRI or the other drugs. Even the antipsychotics have the same story attached to them. That story was invented in a big pharma marketing department. Okay, there's no scientific basis for it. You have to think of these drugs as quite toxic, brain altering drugs. They do what's called cross the blood brain barrier, which means they get into the brain, unlike most drugs, and they produce behavior alterations and addiction that's far more profound than you can ever imagine. So that I want all the listeners to understand that that crossing the, the, uh, the, uh, the bit about these things supplying a, a chemical imbalance and correcting it is entirely a marketing construct. So, you know, someone had kind of some sort of psychiatric condition or whatever the case may be, is your view never to really use drugs and you should use therapy and other, other methods? Or you think there's cases where actually, you know, case by case, certain drugs do work for certain people and, and that kind of thing? My view is that less than 5% of these things are used for appropriate indications. In other words, that we, we have marketed, they were developed with the help with, by doctors who are working hand in hand to market um, the big pharma point of view, which is uh, give them for everything, almost anything. And they're casually prescribed with the use of a questionnaire uh, that takes five minutes to fill out and the doctor comes in, throws a prescription at the patient, and they can sometimes be committed to these things for life because they're so difficult to get off in most cases. So my view is that, that they, I mean, there's basically, there's four classes of these things, right? You've got the ones I mentioned, the SSRI antidepressants like Prozac, everyone's heard of those. Uh, and the, the violence and the addiction are the big problem with those. And then we have a, far more pernicious class of drugs called the atypical antipsychotics. Now, these things shorten lifespan by five to 10 years is well documented. And they're thrown around like jelly beans by the psychiatrists, and sometimes even by the primary care doctors. Mm -hmm. Then we have the, the benzos like Valium, right? And Xanax. Those things are highly addictive. They require tapering doses also to get off of them. And they have tr tremendous, they have short-term relief of anxiety. The initial studies with Xanax, for example, I think, I don't want to misquote this, but it's very close to exactly what happened. They had two weeks of patient improvement with the initial studies, two weeks of neutral. And then when they tried to taper the patients off the drugs, they got much, much worse. The drugs were nevertheless approved by a food and drug administration that is in the pockets of big pharma your listeners should understand that the FDA is entirely corrupted, that anything they say should be regarded as suspect because about half of their revenues come directly from the pharmaceutical companies in the patent approval 
process. That means they're in the pockets of pharma. And if they refuse to pat allow patenting of a drug, they might have trouble making their payroll. Sure. I mean, it's, yeah. So, so anyway, that's three of the four classes. We've got the, the benzos, the SSRIs, the like Prozac, and then the, um, um, and, uh, and then the atypical antipsychotics that shorten your lifespan. And then we have the amphetamines. So the, these drugs and the amphetamine-related compounds like Ritalin, right? And these things are, again, they're passed out like jelly beans in the United States. In Japan, they hardly let them in the country. In France, they think they're very limited utility. They were used by kamikaze pilots in World War II to psych up to drive their planes into the American ships and commit suicide. They've been known to be highly addictive and highly dangerous drugs for you know, 50 years plus. But we are promoting these things now in adults for, you've heard this ADHD, mm -hmm. for adult ADHD. And they're talking about, I mean, it's crazy. They're talking about using antidepressants to prophylax or prevent depression when people have conditions like heart attacks or, so this is, it's a market for everyone. And these guys have pushed the consumption of psych drugs up to 17 or 18% of Americans, which is absolutely insane. I mean, psych drugs for eight, I mean, th these things just cannot be indicated for that many. Anyone with any common sense just has to shake their head and say, this, these people are in the pockets of the drug pushers. And those are, you know, the, 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 can anyway. So uh, just on this mental health uh, kind of section point, um, you know, you hear more and more about people have anxiety or bipolar or all these different depression or whatever, banded around. Um, is, is there a case to say, you know, let's say like 50, 60 years ago, were people just not talking about it as much or was it not as prevalent? Was it just, or is it again like a, a marketing campaign, in your opinion, that has led people to now label things really quickly when it's just the natural flow of life? Like, what's actually going on there? Well, the diagnostic Bible of psychiatry is called the DSM, right? And it goes undergoes iterations every three years or so. And the new diagnoses are voted in uh, by a vote of, I believe it's the American Psychiatric Society. And this thing is, was created primarily by pharmaceutical companies and doctors in the pay of the pharmaceutical companies. And the conflict of it, they call in America, we're allowed, in America, the American medical academics are allowed to do anything they want. They can, they can get paid, they can get bribed. And the only thing they have to do in theory is to put a disclaimer at the end of the article saying, the, the, here are my conflicts of interest. Well, in other fields such as law or, or government, conflict of interest would result in firing or sometimes criminal prosecution. But in medicine, it's, it's business as usual. So the, 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 the psychiatry industry is funded and maintained and created by the pharmaceutical companies and the doctors in the pay of the pharmaceutical companies. I mean, it, it's, it's probably the worst one. I can talk about oncology or cancer therapy as another 
a good example of the problems if you want. I don't know if you go into in your book in any depth as to like countries that are less economically developed, let's take the continent of Africa yeah. as a whole. Um, this is... would, are people healthier there, less healthy because they take less drugs? Like what's going on there? How do you compare that to say the America, Britain, et cetera? Well, it's certainly true that the only true control group we have for these psychiatric, in, in America, by the time we started studying these psych drugs, everybody was freaking on the psych drugs, right? So the, we couldn't develop a control group. And in fact, these studies of the psych drugs suffer from the lack of a sugar pill control group, which is, that's placebo, the, standard, right? the standard, yeah, placebo. So the only good idea we have of what a control would be is a third world country. And all of these psychiatric entities are much less chronic in third world countries where they can't afford the ridiculous price of the drugs. So, you know, they're, and again, they wax and wane. They're, they're, they're not considered chronic. And the other interesting factoid is that our American uh, social support systems chronic disability and so on, um, rose in tandem with the drug use increase, right? So the observers think it's causal due to the drugs. Hmm. So they, they get on these drugs, they're non-functional forever, and they have to stay on the drugs or they have horrendous withdrawal symptoms. Sure, that makes sense. And uh, just changing lanes slightly, um, does your book or does your experience extend um, to how the system in where I'm based in the UK, which has the National Health Service or NHS, um, for people that don't know, it's free at the point of, um, of, of need requirement, um, pretty much across like almost every vertical you think of in the medical community. How does that um, change or differ? Obviously in America, it's far more, um, you know, you have to pay for healthcare effectively, right? Um, and most people anyway. Well, I can't comment too much about Britain, except for to say um, you're in trouble too because the the big uh, healthcare companies dominate over there. But uh, you, I, I can say that we have the worst possible combination of capitalism and socialism, right? In other words, we supply the money to these people, we throw the money at them, the money rains out of the sky at our healthcare, and they take it and they use it to bribe us. That's the way it works. Because this industry at four trillion plus in America, and there are rumors that it's gotten way higher since the COVID thing hit, um, this industry is the same size as our federal government. Might be bigger. There's wow. it's the federal government revenues are 3.5 trillion here. The industry is four trillion, right? Wow. Just for another perspective, you know that the market capitalizations are the total value of Google and Apple alone are far bigger than our federal government. So these guys, it's really, when you think about it, it's no surprise that they get away with whatever they bloody well feel like getting away with. And right now they're censoring us, which is an abridgment of our first amendment rights to free speech. It's the thing that is unique to America. Our constitution is more robust than anywhere else in the world. And it's why we're not quite having as much trouble as everywhere else, because we, we have our constitution, but the most important amendment, the first amendment, the right to free speech is, is being abridged and truncated by these tech companies. And it's, they are obviously being bought by the other forces.
mm -hmm. which are, are complex. And we, you know, it's too much for us to go into the whole thing here, but um, it's, it's a heck of a scene. And anybody that doesn't think we're in trouble should look at Australia and New Zealand and Germany. I mean, it's just, it, the outrages that are being perpetrated there are just incredible. So I have kind of two, two final questions. Uh, one is, um, what, do you think that when you were in practice that you were unaware of what was going on because you were kind of, couldn't see the wood for the trees, want a better phrase, you were involved with it and you didn't necessarily see what's happening or was it just that it wasn't quite as, um, quite as pronounced as it is now and, or is it that you just, because you're up from the outside looking in, you have a better overall picture? Well, the medical practice is consuming, Charles. In other words, you have barely have time for anything. You can take care of your patients and you can sort of manage your office. You have, you know, if you're a hospital physician, you have to run back and forth to the hospital. You got to do continuing medical education. It's endless. And there are some people who I regard as polymaths or geniuses who do it all well, keep up with the medical literature, have a good family life and everything else. But it's, it's, it's very hard to do anything. And like I say, I kind of woke up because of my sequence of, um, you know, what I was involved with. And I have a natural interest in writing. And so I started to write about it. Um, yep, that makes sense. I, yeah. And I guess my, my final question to try and end this on hopefully a positive note, um, where, where a thing, where, okay, let's, let's frame it this way. If, if everything was, um, you know, a utopian kind of environment, like how would things be different? How would you, uh, what would your recommendations be to kind of, we could start from scratch and the kind of medical community with the, uh, the mission being to improve people's well-being and healthcare, like what would we be doing differently? Well, first of all, I don't want to imply that all medicine is bad or that doctors are all bad or anything like that. We do miracles daily in medicine, but the thing has definitely devolved and it's a mess. Um, we, there are solutions in my book that would work, but they're impossible politically because this healthcare is by far the biggest lobby in Congress. It essentially buys off all the opinions of those people and you can't vote against them. And the, you know, it's on both sides of the aisle with few exceptions, the Democrats and the Republicans. So um, the solutions I propose are impossible politically, but they include things like, um, well, if we, if we killed drug patents, that would just slow down the whole thing, wouldn't it? The drug patents are the mechanism by which all this profiteering has occurred. Um, there are some commentators that have recommended putting all the medications on uh, over the counter, except for, you know, opioids. And in my opinion, any of these psych drugs, which I think we should lock up very carefully, uh, you know, and amphetamines. So, uh, but, and that's done in other countries and it works fairly well. It takes the power out of the hands of the um, establishment. And if the, the people get horrible side effects when they try something over the counter, they're going to throw it away instead of being encouraged by their doctor and uh, all the ads and all that. We have, we permit in the United States and one other country, direct to consumer ads are permitted, right? In other words, we have all this stuff on TV regarding these medicines that cost thousands of dollars a month. Well, 
and are paid for, of course, by the third party, which is the worst of all worlds. They're either paid for by insurance or they're paid for by a government program like Medicare. So, and that encourages overconsumption and waste. There's nobody watching the till. Um, so getting rid of, everyone agrees that getting rid of direct-to-consumer ads is a, is a good idea. These ads run in other countries too because they're used as filler in the TV shows, um, you know, because they don't have enough money to, they don't have enough uh, adver advertisers to fill everything. Mm -hmm. So, so those are, those are some of the ideas. I have a complete guide to what would, uh, what would clean everything up in my book, but you have to understand that the only thing that's going to clean everything up is a great crisis. And that we've got, somehow we've got that brewing with all the money printing and all the other, the other nonsensical narratives that are going on over here and uh, the rest of the world sort of blindly following. I guess I did start the final question, but I have something else that's popped up. Um, have you surveyed other countries? Like where, where's a good, right now, uh, a good model behavior and, and what, what country and why? Well, there, there's no country that's free of this stuff. The, third, the, the, the poorest countries are influenced by experimental programs that are foisted on them by um, Fauci. And uh, reading Kennedy's book, and you can get that on, for $3 on Kindle, and you can read all about that. But there are some good things, right? I mean, you know, you guys don't do as many mammograms as we do over here, and the numbers on mammograms are not good. I believe... Um, Switzerland and France uh, backed off from any recommendations for routine mammograms. Of course, if you have a problem or a lump, then you get a mammogram. Um, Japan rejected the HPV vaccine, which is a human papillomavirus or the wart vaccine, which supposedly decreases cervical cancer. Uh, and they looked at the fact that the pharmaceutical companies had hidden 50% of the studies on the HPV vaccine. And when, when somebody has lied to you over and over and over, your conclusion must be that you can never trust them again. And that's the case with these pharmaceutical companies because they have more criminal settlements with the federal prosecutors in the US than any industry in history. Well, Japan, Japan you know, they're, they're not perfect either, but they rejected, at least they rejected and threw out the HPV vaccine and less than 1% of their people or their kids get it you've had it and all of our kids have had it over here because the pharmaceutical companies are so powerful. So. Yeah, no, listen, I think it's been a really interesting and, and wide ranging interview. And of course, if people are interested and it's piqued their curiosity about uh, learning more about the, the system um, at a more, more granular level and more kind of a better understanding than your book, but by healthcare, as you've shown a few times uh, available on Amazon um, and I guess other um outlets as well um where you can find, right yep that's right and then the hormone secrets book and then my website is robertyohoauthor.com and on there is information about covid and the vaccine frauds and the therapies that are being withheld from from covid patients and they probably would have saved 85 percent of the people who died i mean it's it's a really really crazy narrative when i got started on that i the rest of medical corruption seemed like minor league stuff. Wow. Well, thank you very much for your time. And um, yeah, I will, I'll pop the links into the description for your book and, and the other kind of information that you mentioned as well. Thank you, Charles. I really appreciate coming on. Thank you.